Mike Shebit is the hardest working man in tech right now. I recently met him and he is a crazy, crazy founder. He honestly believes that he's going to build the next trillion dollar company and will tell you with a completely straight face. But not only that, you can ask anyone that works for him what the value of their company will be in a few decades, and they will all, without hesitation, say $1 trillion. We're building a trillion dollar company. He's created this insane culture at his company um, and where they just work intensely hard and they have this massive vision. And it's all very funny because they're operating in the least sexy business possible, light industrial staffing, which was an area that I didn't know really anything about. But once I started learning about the industry, I can see why every venture capitalist is like obsessed with this guy um, because it's an absolutely huge market and he's running his company with this like incredible operational efficiency. Uh, so there's a lot to learn from this company. And so I'll take you through the history of labor markets, how light industrial staffing works, Mike's journey, which is super interesting. He was at Uber and had learned a lot of lessons there. And there's just a lot to learn from him as an operator. And then we'll talk about kind of, you know, can he you know, build this trillion dollar company. So in terms of what Traba, his company actually does, uh, it's a two-sided marketplace. Basically they recruit workers and then they sell that labor to companies. So there are plenty of warehouses or small industrial firms, whether they're manufacturing something, using forklifts to move things around, unloading trucks when they come in. Um, this is like super critical to the American economy and it's everywhere, it touches everything, but most people just don't see it because it's invisible. You just get the package that shows up at your, at your house or you, you know, just use the device or the, or the you know, good or service that you've purchased, but you don't see all of the workers that were in the higher up in the supply chain. So Traba basically, the whole goal is just to match workers who need jobs to companies that need workers. And all of this is done on a temporary basis. So uh, super critical for industries that have flexible demand. So if there's a big surge around the holidays or a big surge around a specific PO purchase order where a company's trying to, you know, get a lot done very quickly. They need flexible workers to come in and help build or fulfill or do whatever they need to do. Uh, that's where staffing comes in. And it's a it's an absolutely massive industry. We'll go into the exact numbers, but basically Traba is different because most staffing agencies, they have physical offices where workers can show up, they sit there, they you know put up their resumes, and then they have basically a call center that just calls different companies and says, hey, I have a worker here, do you, you know, need anybody today? Or vice versa, the company will call and say, hey, I need 20 people to come help drive forklifts and unload trucks, uh, who you got? And then the physical office will actually start phone banking and calling all these different people. Obviously, this is a big opportunity for software. Um, there's, a, there's a very interesting question about like, why doesn't this exist <laughs> already? Because a lot of the software that they're using, they're not using fancy AI or crypto or any of the modern kind of trendy tech. It's really just mobile apps and web websites, basically web apps. Um, but nevertheless, it's it's clearly just an industry that's been kind of forgotten. And I also think there's a weird dynamic where people are making so much money that there's not really an incentive to actually build like the fully optimized solution because um, the, the like the market's just so big. Um, there are 17 different staffing firms that make over a billion dollars in revenue every year. And there's 157 staffing firms that make over a hundred million in revenue a year. So it feels like basically everyone that starts a staffing firm does very, very well. I actually just talked to a different guy who uh, sold his staffing firm to private equity and was a little bit focused on a different niche, wasn't as tech enabled, um, but still just like a really, really great cash flow, cash flow business. Um, and there's 25,000 staffing firms in the United States. Um, but it's, a, it's just a highly reactive industry. There's really heavy operational expenses and most of these companies are not tech enabled. They're just, you know, they get an office uh, near a warehousing district, they call a bunch of companies, they call a bunch of workers, they put out some job ads, and then their whole job is just to match these people together. Um, but they don't really use software to you know, intermediate that exchange. And obviously there's a huge opportunity there. So the market's, the market's massive, half a trillion dollars globally in staffing, 160 billion in the United States, and 52 billion in the light industrial staffing se sector, which 
Traba is particularly focused on. So light industrial is something where you don't need, it's pretty much unskilled labor. You might need to drive a forklift, but mostly you just need to be ready to show up, work, take instructions, um, put labels on boxes, unload a truck, these types of things. It's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. Um, and you can move from driving for Uber to working in a fulfillment house very, very easily. And these kind of temporary staffing positions, it now makes up 2% of the global workforce, but it wasn't always that way. Um, back in 1990, it was only 1%, and over the, over the, the 90s, over that decade, that that percentage of the overall workforce that's working on a temp basis basically doubled from one percent of the overall workforce to two percent of the overall workforce and when i saw this chart it was like it was like that wtf happened in 1971 chart where you just look at this like discontinuous trend in the curve and then for the last 20 years basically the the, the number of temp workers in america in the labor force has oscillated right around two percent basically if there's a recession it might go down a little bit um but even even more recently it's it, it's kind of always stuck around two percent but there's clearly a very very structural change that happened in 1990 1991 and so i wanted to dig into that so i looked i looked into it and Basically, what happened was that at the, at the turn of the, the start of the 90s, there was a recession and we went through what's called like a jobless recovery where the economy rebounded and it wasn't actually that bad of a recession. People don't look back on it as particularly uh, disastrous for the U.S. economy, but there were a bunch of like structural changes in how the U.S. economy worked. So uh, the U.S. switched was basically transitioning from manufacturing to services. And so many of these manufacturing jobs were lost and people had to flow over to services sectors. Um, there was also like the rise of computers and technological innovations. Um, so companies were able to do more with fewer workers and um, that reduced the demand for certain types of labor. And then there was an acceleration of globalization. So companies were, this was like the, the main time when people were, uh, when companies were outsourcing to cheaper labor markets across the globe. And so um, domestic job growth wasn't as robust. And a lot of these, uh, like a lot of the workers shifted over to this temp work where they're moving from one company to another. Um, and, and there was a very, very structural change in the American economy. And so a lot of the, the interesting kind of narrative violation around Traba is that, you know, if you talk to people in tech, a lot of them are very, very pro globalization, you know, remote work, use the cheapest labor possible, outsource to other countries. And then also there's this whole narrative around AI taking everything, we're gonna build robots. And that's, that is like kind of the, the future thrust of, you know, American innovation broadly, but there's still this need to match American workers with American jobs. And I think that uh, Traba is interesting because there's going, like as AI replaces certain jobs, it's actually going to make this labor matching problem even more important because you need to very, very quickly move workers from one job to the next. So if if all of a sudden someone, you know, builds a you know, a machine that can automate putting labels on e-commerce packages and you don't need people to physically do that anymore. You need to get those people new jobs as fast as possible. And so these labor marketplaces are kind of the, the, the like the best way to act as a stopgap on like structural unemployment because you don't want people falling out of the labor market permanently and becoming like chronically unemployed. Um, you want people you know, if they if they have a gap in their resume, they need to be you know uh, at paying the bills and obviously paying for their lifestyle. So um, if they can if, if they can hop into like the gig economy for a little bit or move over to a you know light industrial staffing company to get a job somewhere and then start building up the resume. And we will go into kind of like the long term of how Traba like creates value for the workers in in just a little bit. Um, but first, we should talk more about the history of Mike Shebit because he's a fascinating tech founder because he's mostly he's not he's not your traditional tech guy he's just a ruthless operator and it's just fascinating to see that this works and and still you know all the VCs who 
the total narrative is always like, oh, I want to I want to find like the the genius hacker who just figured out like this beautiful algorithm and then back it and it'll just make money forever. Uh, like, you know, I always think about Google, like they come out with the page rank algorithm and then they've created this incredible monopoly. And now they they, they have to write memos internally to say that, you know, you should never if you work at Google, you should never mention, you know, any of these words that might trigger an FTC action because they have such a strong monopoly just on the basis of their of like the, the core design of their main product. And so the, they've been able to take their foot off the gas. And that's why it has such a relaxed culture. Um, Mike is like the exact opposite. He's not a computer scientist. He grew up in northern Virginia outside of D.C. Uh, and it, it, I asked him, like, how do you pronounce your last name? Is it Shebet or Shabbat or Shabbat? And apparently his parents pronounce the name differently, which is something I've never heard. Like you would think that they'd get in the, get, get in the same get on the same page, but he pronounces it Mike Shebet. And he has a twin brother, two younger siblings. He grew up in the suburbs, went to public school. No no crazy tech background. Like really no stories of like being the hacker kid. He has this interesting story early on where he saw his mom write a check to his piano teacher and was was immediately like like. He was like seven years old, but he was just like, oh, okay, this piano teacher is running this business. They have like profits and losses. Like I want to run a business at some point. He's like this operational guy. It's, it's so, so funny. He's not thinking about like, oh, like let's create an app for this or something. Um, he's six minutes younger than his twin. And so he has this like intense competitive drive with his twin. It obviously starts like athletics. They're very competitive. And his brother is better at field sports. And so Mike becomes a swimmer and starts dominating his brother in the water. And it just feels like Gattaca where like there's, you know, these two, 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 two siblings or two, you know, uh, adjacent people who are kind of like ruthlessly competing and kind of like keeps him, keeps him really focused on like the grind. Basically, he's like, oh, he's like, like the story throughout everyone I talk to is just like he's relentless. He'll never stop until he succeeds. He's very goal oriented, which is uh, just just very interesting to hear. So um he, his, his little brother actually went to the Olympic trials and I think beat Ryan Lochte, but uh, kind of got messed up by COVID timelines and stuff. Um, but, you know, the whole family is just super competitive. And so Mike goes to University of G Virginia because uh, he's from Virginia and he uh, studies economics. And he, he kind of has this like chip on his shoulder because everyone says that he should be in the business school, not studying economics, which is probably in the liberal arts school. I had the exact same thing at Northeastern where um, – I was studying economics because it's kind of a more rigorous discipline <laughs> than business, in my opinion. Um, but like business was like where all like the the cool internships were that like paid all the highest highest uh, you know hourly wages or whatever. Um, so he he starts like thinking forward, and I like this I like this pattern of thinking like reverse induction. Basically, you you start at the finish line and then you kind of work backwards. And so he was thinking like, okay, well, eventually I want to go to Harvard Business School. And what are the top jobs that funnel people into HBS? And the obvious conclusion was banking. So he starts hustling to get like a tier one investment banking internship. And they don't really recruit from UVA. So he has to do a bunch of really hard work writing like essays and, and like letters to Goldman people. But he actually does land an internship. Uh, he works he works like su super hard, but still like is looking for the next thing. He actually he takes the GMAT. He's kind of coy about this, um, but I think it like speaks volumes about him. Um, he takes the GMAT to, uh, you know, prepare for business school and like to potentially get in. Um, and nor normally people, you know, they take standardized tests, they do okay. And then, you know, maybe you didn't have a, you didn't have an off, you had an off day. So you take it again, maybe you take it like two or three times. Like this is what I did with the SAT. Um, he took it eight times, which is the, the maximum amount of times you can take it. Uh, he's just like, there's no amount of pain. I mean, sitting for a standardized test sucks. Everyone knows this. Um, most people, they just kind of realize that there's some sort of diminishing, you know, marginal benefit to taking it again. And okay, the first time maybe you, the first time you retake it, maybe you improve like 10%. But after that, you're really only getting like minor gains. But Mike is just like, he just doesn't care. So he just took it eight times, got his score like really, really high. And, uh, 
and kind of maxed out. And I, I was talking to Keith Raboy, who put some money in the company, and he was like, as soon as I heard that, I was like, this is, this is the founder I want to back because like he will just not stop, and there's no amount of pain that he, he that he's willing to you know endure to get what he wants. Um, so after the Goldman internship, he goes to Blackstone in New York City, and he's working at their like hedge fund analysis group, like Fund of Funds, um, and he's and he thinks he still wants to go into into finance and it, it, I mean it really really tracks because like the whole thing with with Mike as you'll see in Traba is like they work this incredible they work this crazy crazy culture with like you know they nine nine six and they work like you know twenty four seven basically um, and that's like perfectly aligned for finance like the meme in finance is like oh you, you work like eighty or hundred hours a week while you like grind your way up as an associate um, so like he could have been successful in that career path I think um, but. He takes a class in the engineering school on entrepreneurship, and he realizes that he wants to go into operations and not finance because finance, you know, it's 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 prestigious, but it's not intellectually stimulating to him because hedge funds are just not that complicated from an operational standpoint. Like, um, it's it's more just about actually like running running the numbers, um, and so he gets poached from Blackstone by this this really, really boring engineering supplier called McMaster Carr. Um, but they're, they're really, really well, uh, respected in the, in the industry. So they're like a B2B supplier for a bunch of manufacturing companies. So like if SpaceX needs like tons of screws for their next rocket, they will buy that from McMaster Carr. And so they fly, McMaster Carr flies Mike out to LA and he's just like immediately obsessed as soon as he's like walking around the warehouses and sees all the conveyor belts. He's like, this is what I was born to do, which is hilarious because obviously, uh, most people do not feel that way. <laughs> Most people would be like, this sucks. Um, but it, this is a real like unfair advantage moment for him because most people are not interested in this stuff. And so there's huge alpha for him in going into something that is underappreciated, not prestigious, but he can actually accelerate his career in. So he goes into this like management rotation program. He's quickly like managing these facilities. Um, and he learns like a ton about the American economy and how business and products like flow through these distribution and logistics hubs. Um, and this is just completely hidden to most people. So it's one of those things where, you know, everyone, everyone interacts with social apps. So then they go into Y Combinator and then they start a social app company. And there was like a meme for a while about like, oh, it's local, it's social. Um, but, you know, very few people have actual insight into, you know, what goes on behind the scenes in the American economy. And so he, he sees SpaceX, which is a big company. They're ordering a ton of products um, and it's highly variable. And so they have ma massive fluctuations in demand. And like all of a sudden they'll need to hire a ton of people to like fulfill the SpaceX PO because SpaceX ordered a ton of stuff and they need to pack it all up and, and make sure it gets off of, the, off of the trucks at the right time. And so this is like the first taste of like, oh, flexible staffing is broken. He's, he's doing everything over email, calling these staffing firms or emailing them and saying, okay, I need 20 workers today to you know, unload this truck. Uh, can you send them? And then you know, only half the people show up, they're unreliable. And so he kind of er, like, like, identifies that there's like a problem here. Um, but before he starts Traba, he moves over to Uber because it's a much more faster paced company than McMaster Car. It's much smaller. And he, he joins Uber Eats, which was basically run as like a startup within a startup out of LA and Toronto. And he, he gets this call and he's excited to just go to a company that's moving even faster and still like very, very operationally intense. Like Uber, Uber at this time, this is like 2016, I think, was, uh, was a very, very like operationally focused company, even though it was like kind of big at this point. Um, it was like the Uber Eats opportunity was very much like go and just get shit done basically. So he he like re relocates for them, uh, has a ton of autonomy and just is super focused on you know immediate impact. Um, and to, it's it's so fascinating because everyone in tech wants to tell this like you know amazingly elegant story about oh well we thought of this platform and it naturally had this network effect and everything was just off to the races but like that's not the reality at all like like to get these markets off the ground um it was a very very like just manual boots on the ground operation and uber is like a total cult at this time everyone's working constantly a lot of young people with a lot of crazy autonomy obviously this was controversial later and led to like all that media backlash but it looks really really good in hindsight because like uber they they were really really grinding on this you know take over the world mentality and 
for a long time, people were like, oh, it, it, like Lyft is the same value and there's gonna be other companies and maybe Uber, like they didn't need to go after this, like really like, you know, uh, w w what's the name of the, the book? Super Pumped was uh, Travis Kalanick's like saying. Um, maybe they didn't need this like, you know, aggressive culture because like there wasn't actually like a real monopoly to build here. But if you look at the market caps today, Uber's worth almost a hundred billion dollars and Lyft is worth four billion and is in trouble and, you know, might get sold for parts maybe. So there's this weird thing where, you know, it, it wasn't working for years because basically a lot of, a lot of investors were like propping up Lyft for the most part. And there was this like capital war between Uber and Lyft, but the, um, but, but eventually like Uber did win. And, and I think like the Travis Kalanick looks like a, looks like a genius in, in hindsight. Um, and so, um, this crazy culture at Uber was obviously intense, but it, really worked out for pretty much everyone who is in it because all, all of them got equity. The equity is now in a $100 billion company. So a lot of people who are early worked incredibly hard, grew the company, they wound up rich and, and, you know, and can work a lot more flexible hours now. And so we'll, we'll go a little bit more into the, the, the work-life balance debate in, the, in a minute. But um, for now, let, like, let's just focus on Uber Eats because it's super, super fascinating. It's a very weird marketplace. Um, there's like this meme online of like how a lot of people will describe their businesses like oh we're we're building a two-sided marketplace and a lot of people will say wait like is there anything but a two-sided marketplace like it isn't isn't two-sided marketplace like implicit in the name marketplace you just assume that it's always two-sided but that's actually not the case uber eats so uber is a two-sided marketplace uh like uber drivers it's drivers and then riders but with uber eats there's actually three sides it's the restaurants who make the food the drivers who deliver the food and then the customers who buy and eat the food and so that just adds a lot of extra work and complexity um but you know mike he really thrives in these operational environments. And so he gets the opportunity to launch uh, Rio de Janeiro. And so he flies down to Brazil and he runs this playbook that they have. And it's, it's just so, it's so funny that they just let this like 20 year old, this 20, 20 something year old guy go down there and just like figure it out. Like, here's this budget, here's a credit card, like go get a hotel room and like launch this new market. Like we have the app built, but like you got to go figure out the go to market basically. And so here's how, here's how he did it. Cause it's a really interesting story. Um, Basically, the, the, the first step is to find the restaurants and convince them that, you know, even with Uber's fee, they're going to make more money. So they're, they're, you're going to raise their incremental revenue. You're going to build their, their sales. Um, and so the first step is kind of building out this sales force and building a lead list. And all of this will become very, very important at Traba and how he runs that company. But at Uber Eats, you know, you, you scrape Yelp or Google or whatever the local app is in Rio de Janeiro. And then you build out a sales force and they start calling and going to these restaurants and convincing them. And then once, once Uber Eats has about 100 restaurants uh, like signed up and saying, yep, I'm ready to deliver. When you're ready to go, we, we can launch together. I'm excited about this. Then they have you know, a diversity of cuisine. You can get kind of anything you want. You can get Chinese or burritos or you know, wh whatever the local uh, varieties are. So there's this core density. So when a, when a customer shows up, they can kind of get whatever they want. Um, and then you have to recruit the drivers. And so with Uber, they had a big advantage there because they, obviously they had all the local Uber drivers, but it's not as easy as you'd think because some Uber drivers like driving people and not delivering food. And then the opposite is true as well. So getting the right person for the job is actually kind of underappreciated in, you know, I think Silicon Valley and most like white collar workers where we just kind of think like, oh, you just tell the person what to do and they'll be happy. But no, there's some people that are, you know, very pro-social and they want to have conversations with people. They basically want to be a taxi cab driver. And then there's other people that are a little more antisocial and want to just, you know, listen to their audiobooks or their podcasts and drive around and deliver food. And they don't really want to interact with that many people. Or maybe they don't speak, you know, the local language. And so uh, delivering for delivering food is like a way better um, just opportunity for them. And they really enjoy that. That, that, that career much more. And so, so, so he figures out how to build, so he's gotten the 100 restaurants in Rio de Janeiro and he's gotten the, the Uber drivers, like a select few of them to switch over to be Uber Eats drivers and he's recruited some more people. And then the, the question is like, how do you get the customers to be aware of the fact that Uber Eats is now in town and available? And he said, you basically have to do a, like a really crazy marketing stunt. And 
I, I, I take a ton away from this because like viral marketing is so, it's such like a sexy term because it's so fun and so interesting and such a, such a, like, like a, an uh, intellectual problem to solve. Um, but it's really only good for market entry. It doesn't really sustain a business because you can't be doing viral stunts like every single week. Uh, it, it, it's not very repeatable, but you can usually do it once. And so what they did in Rio de Janeiro was they gave away free beer, which I don't think you can do in America. In LA, I remember they did free ice cream and all of the little Uber cars were ice cream cones for the day. Um, but it's great because they get a ton of press. Everyone writes about it. And then obviously everyone wants to get a free beer. So they they download the app, they jump to the top of the app store, and then you kind of have this flywheel where you can re-engage those folks, send them push notifications and emails, and then get them to go and, and order on the app and actually um, you know continue to use uh, Uber Eats. And so they jump to the top of the app store. They do this free, uh, this free beer promotion. They're running this all out of a hotel room with like tons of iPads. And they basically tell all the drivers to come to this parking lot. They buy a bunch of cases of beer. They load in, they load in beer to all the drivers' cars and then they send them out. And they kind of, they kind of very manually say, okay, we need 10 people in this neighborhood, five people in this neighborhood. Like you guys go hang out over there and, and then do these deliveries. And, uh, and, and it works and they kind of get the flywheel going. And it's just a funny example of like crazy autonomy to just like, delegate uh, to, you know, like a bunch of 20 somethings to just go down there and figure it out. Um, but, you know, it's the, 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 the startup within a startup, which is like how Uber Eats was like framing itself. It's kind of a cliche and it's usually a bad deal because you're, yeah, you're, yeah, yeah you might be building a new business within a startup, but if the, if the, the main startup is already mature, then you don't have that crazy thousand X equity upside. And that was kind of the case at, at Uber. But, you know, in terms of operational experience, Mike got a thousand X then that he could get anywhere else because he was basically in charge of this entire business line. Um, so this is just like an insane grind. Uh, the the culture of Uber, like Travis just loves like sending, you know, crazy 20 somethings to foreign countries and having them figure it out, uh, give them a budget, let them make mistakes. And it works really well. Uh, and yeah, this pattern works when you get people like Mike in the mix. Um, and so th there's this question about like, you know, how hard should you work? Like what is the ideal like work-life balance? There's a lot of debates on Twitter about this. And, and I, I have a bunch of thoughts about it. Like one, it's just that like, you know, it, it, with with so many of these businesses, we're in direct competition with China and they have a culture of 996ing, which means you work from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. And so, um, you know, we can't get outcompeted around like critical industries. Certainly that's not important at Google, I guess, because the 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 service is just is just so sticky that even even if you, you know, are sitting on the roof and relaxing like in that scene in Silicon Valley, it doesn't really matter. Um, but, but for certain key industries, like it, it is important to, to work extremely hard. Um, and the interesting thing about 996ing is that it, it, it's, it's framed as this like insane work culture, but it's actually less than a hundred hours a week, which is like what I, which like that, that was the finance meme back when I was looking at investment banking was that, oh, all the investment bankers, they, they, they work like a hundred hours a week. So, I mean, they're, they're like nine, nine, seven-ing and they're, they're in on Sunday. And I know a lot of people that did go into investment banking um, for like a few years and some of them hated it and some of them loved it. And I think the, I think the real outcome is like, is like, are you on a path that you actually want to be on? Because a lot of people, they join some firm that, you know, where the culture is like, let's work really, really hard, but they actually, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. They're not going to actually make a lot of money or they're going to wind up with a job that they hate. Like there's somebody had this quote that was like, the reward for good work is more work. So you really need to focus on making sure that the work that you're doing is something that you enjoy because a lot of people they if they're if they're in something where they where they really enjoy it they wind up working crazy hours but it really just doesn't feel like work because the work is you know meeting with people who they like and they're working with their friends and they're going to events that are you know related to their work and it's kind of unclear if they're you know really if 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 like like the work is not draining them, it's giving them energy. And so 
uh, just like, I think it's not, it's not, there's like this weird question of like, what is a toxic work environment? And I think that it all comes down to, first off, it needs to be opt-in and there needs to be a big mission. So you have to, you have to go in with your eyes open and Mike is very clear about this upfront and it makes hiring really, really hard for him because upfront he says, look, like I'm going to be in the office six days a week, basically all day and everyone else is. And so if you thrive in that culture and you love that, then you're gonna have a great time here. But if you don't, then go work at Google and that's fine. Um, and, then, and then yes, you have to have a big mission. It's very, very difficult if you're running this like insane work culture, but there's no equity, there's no, really, uh, there's no real upside and you're working on kind of a, like a dumb, a dumb mission. It's not really worth it then and you're just gonna burn out if you don't actually like the the, the long-term vision. You're not going to be proud of what you built. Um, and there's this, there's this ridiculous World Health Organization study about the, like the health impacts of long work hours. And I think they, they, they look at, you know, the, the takeaway, the headline is that if you work over 60 or 70 hours a week, it increases the risk of like heart attack, for example. But there's a bunch of problems with the, with this particular research report. One is that it only looks at people who are 45 and over. And obviously, like the decision to work long hours is wildly different when you're in your 20s and you have nothing going on. Like what if you're not going to be working, you're just going to be like out drinking probably or like playing video games. It's not like you're raising a family at this point. So um, so the decision to, to work long hours young obviously doesn't have any health impact. And then also it doesn't seg it doesn't segment blue collar work or physical labor from mental labor and white collar work. Because obviously if you're working long hours, but your, your job is to socialize or your job is to, you know, sit on the computer and write code, that's going to be a lot less taxing on your physical health. And so um, I'd be, I'd be very, very cautious about anyone that tries to make like a claim that, you know, working at a tech company long hours when you're in your 20s is going to like kill you. I think that that's like ridiculous. Um, it needs, there needs to be a big payoff and you need equity and you need to be working on something important that will accelerate your career. But for a lot of those people, I know, I know a ton of people that were at Uber in their 20s and made a ton of money and now they're, they're starting companies and VCs are funding them like crazy. And they have the opportunity to just become managers in different businesses. And like they really, really accelerated their careers. And now they, they don't need to work as hard basically because they worked hard early. So like there's no, there's no real substitute for that. Um, and uh, I, I asked Mike like, you know, how did you, how did you get to this? Like what were your inspirations? And uh, he highlighted this book that I, I, I really enjoyed it myself. It's uh, The Score Takes Care care of itself by Bill Walsh, who's the football coach for the San Francisco 49ers. And there's kind of like, there's a bunch of takeaways, but the three main ones are, you know, you need in your organization, if you're gonna have a high performance organization, you need to focus on the process instead of fixating on the end result. So just think about the inputs, that's what matters. And that's why the long hours are valuable. And that's why the operational focus on these businesses is so important. So really, like the score takes care of itself. If you're practicing really, really hard every day, you're going to wind up winning instead of uh, instead of completely fo focusing on this like you know vanity metric or like this thing that's very abstract at the end of the tunnel. Focus on showing up early to practice on the very first day, and and then that will carry through. And then he also has some other takeaways like the standard of performance. Like everyone in the organization needs to have behavioral expectations regardless of their role in the organization. So you know. It, like you can't have this like se like like this um, this like segregation between like oh like the management team works really hard or just the engineering organization works really hard and the sales guys are like just out drinking or or vice versa maybe the sales guys are like traveling on the road like away from their families for like months and then the engineers are like enjoying like free food and like leaving at 4 p.m. Um, like like there needs to be like a consistent standard of performance across the organization and then and then the last like takeaway that I really enjoyed from that book is um, like leadership is a responsibility and great leaders must demonstrate commitment, consistency and care in their actions. And I think that uh, like Mike lives this like a hundred percent, like he is the first one in the office, the last one out. And, and he is like, you know, maniacal about everything. Like uh, e even when I went to go sit down with him and interview him, like 
uh, we had an hour scheduled. He stayed for an hour and a half, and then and then he hopped back on at the end and was constantly like, "Okay, what else can we do to make this great?" Like really, like any anything that um, anything that he could do to like accelerate the, the 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 process. Like he was he was willing to like he was basically just just grinding it out the entire time, um, and so Mike, you know, he was at Uber for five years. Uh, he's fully vested, but again, like he joined when the company was already pretty big. He was looking for something new, and it was Uber was never really about the money. It was about the operational experiences, and he had gotten those at Uber Eats. And then, obviously, in 2020, he's been there for five years, um, and COVID hits. And uh, COVID is a really important turning point for Mike in a bunch of ways. First is that it highlights like the massive labor shortage in e-commerce warehouses. Like we all saw this, there was like the essential worker was on the front lines and there was this weird kind of dichotomy where like the tech workers were able to, you know, work from home and be on Zoom and like completely isolate. But like the people who were like delivering stuff and working in warehouses, they still had to show up because they were essential workers. And um, and it was, it was very clear that like the economy was going to go through like a massive upheaval and none of the competitors in the in the staffing space were really prepared to solve the issue at the scale it was. I mean, I think unemployment went over 10% and bounced back really quickly. Um, and so there was clearly, like, it, it just it just highlighted in his mind that this was a problem worth working on and like, and, and just actually matching workers to good jobs would be super, super critical. Um, and I one of the things that I like to do when I go and research these people um, is I like to go and find like the really, really old tweets. And I found his first tweet ever, which is hilarious because it's like the perfect encapsulation of this guy. Uh, so on May, 22, uh, May 22nd, 2020, this is like two months into COVID lockdowns, uh, he posts his first tweet ever. And, and it says, with work from home, the divide between the motivated and the unmotivated is only going to increase further. Some people will pour their extra two hours each day into Netflix. Others will pour it into work, side projects, working out, learning new things. And like, you can just tell that that's exactly what Mike did. Like he was grinding at Uber, he starts this side project. This is when he starts thinking about Traba seriously. He's also like an insane athlete and like worked, he's like the best, in, he's like the fittest man in tech basically. Um, and and he, and he was just like, like clearly like obsessed. Um, but uh, in, even at Uber, which had this like very, you know, aggressive operational culture, like Travis was out at this point, COVID was kind of this meme where like everyone in tech was kind of slowing down, working remotely, everything. This was the era of, you know, the engineer working two different jobs, three different jobs, uh, turning off their Zoom cameras while they were on, you know, working at Google and Facebook simultaneously making like a million dollars in base comp. Uh, it's like ridiculous time. And and he, he just like cannot stand this. <laughs> like he's just like pissed basically. Um, so he... He knows the problem super well. He's worked on this for a long time. He knows that there's like really low fill rates. So like the workers like often will say, yeah, I'm available, but then they don't show up. And then the companies also like might try and like underpay the employees or say, oh, you weren't here. So like, like this is a problem that tech needs to solve. But again, he's not a tech guy. He's the operational guy. So he can get the flywheel going and build just like a normal staffing company. But if he wants to build something that can get really, really big, he needs to build you know, a tech solution and he needs a technical co-founder basically. So he goes to this program called On Deck, uh, which was like kind of like a co-founder dating like service. It was like there were these cohorts and you go there and you noodle on ideas and you meet people. And um, it was like a good place to kind of figure out what, what you do next. And while he's there, he's like extremely goal oriented. Everyone's kind of just like taking a break from their, you know, big tech jobs, like maybe, you know, being like, maybe I'll start a company or maybe I'll, you know, do something like, no, Mike goes in and he's like, I need a technical co-founder. I'm going to find the single most qualified, uh, you know, engineer in this entire community and recruit them. And so he, you know, he, he, he's like, you know, reading through like every single, every single person's post and he finds this guy, Akshay, who went to Stanford. He was a senior engineering manager at Fanatics. And then he was at Zenefits during their hyper growth phase. And, and just like realizes that like Akshay is like the perfect person for this. And that they align most importantly about the work ethic and about kind of going after something with like huge huge scale and so um so he he kind of you know 
partners up with Akshay, they figure out the equity stuff and they're like, okay, we're ready to go. And so of course, you know, he needs to raise money. Uh, so he, 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 it's so funny because like I thought everyone knew that Keith Raboy was in uh, Miami, but he actually found Keith through an air table of Miami investors and reached out to him on LinkedIn. Like I didn't, I didn't, I, I can't imagine, uh, like I, th I didn't know people used LinkedIn anymore, um, <laughs> but apparently <laughs> Keith still reads his LinkedIn messages. Um, but Mike was able to like break through the noise by essentially challenging him to a berries class, which is hilarious. Like Bar uh, Keith loves berries, this like workout class. And so uh, uh, Mike reaches out to him and says like, hey, I'm working on something really big. I'd love to talk to you about it. Also like we should do a berries class. And so they go and do it and they're like fiercely competing. Mike's uh, competing. M Mike says it's like probably one of his best berries classes ever. Cause he like, you know, he's getting like sized up by like the, you know, the biggest berries uh, you know, proponent in tech. Um, and basically like, like Keith loves this type of like highly operational energy. He's, you know, early DoorDash guy. Um, a lot of his businesses are, are, are based around just like outworking the competition. Um, and that's like what kind of defines like a Keith company. And so, um, and, and Keith also likes the idea of like being unapologetic about what it takes to succeed. And so, you know, recognizing that in the industrial staffing market, the the differentiator would not be just like, oh, AI or like a cool algorithm. It would be just straight up outworking the competition. And so they're like perfectly aligned. Um, and so, you know, Keith writes a check and and they start, I, I think Andreessen came in as well and, and they start building out the company. Um, th there's another interesting tidbit that, uh, that Mike took away from Keith, which was that a lot of advice out there is middle of the bell curve because it's designed to, you know, appeal to the broadest audience possible. But if you want a power law outcome, you can't take middle of the bell curve advice. Like the advice that you take has to be somewhat heretical. And there's this interesting example from Keith that I like and I've been thinking about a lot, which is that, you know, people often ask the question, like, should you as a founder or manager micromanage your employees or delegate and give them like extreme autonomy? And it's, it, it's something that people love to debate. You know, they say, oh, like, you know, this person, this example of this famous entrepreneur was a super micromanager. Or like, oh, this person just like completely delegates it. They're not even there. And the company just prints money because they've hired so well. Like, you should just hire eight players. Um, but Keith's answer is actually that it's both. Like, you, you need to micromanage certain people and delegate to others. And that like, when you do a reference check, if the person that you're reference checking with and you're saying, hey, uh, you know, I'm calling about, you know, Mike Shebit. Like, what was it like working for him? If if that person says, oh, my boss was a micromanager, that might not reflect on the boss as much as it might reflect on the person, because a really, really good boss might step in and say, okay, this person is on a good trajectory, but I need to work with them very, very closely to level them up, and so I'm going to be, you know, having daily meetings with them, really holding their hand, teaching them everything I know. I'm going to be completely in the weeds, reviewing everything that I do because I think there's like greatness there, as opposed to you talk to another person and say, oh yeah, Mike was a great boss. He completely gave me full autonomy. That might just reflect on that particular person that that particular person is able to just go and get stuff done and be fully trusted. And so it's, it's just one of those interesting kind of uh, narrative violations that like you, 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 you can't think of absolutes in this, in this like managerial style. And I think that's what makes Mike like a good operator is that he's you know, obviously mentored by Keith, who's also a good operator. Um, so once they raise the money and they're building the first prototype, they're, they're, they have a very clear goal, which is basically a million dollars in uh, not like annual recurring revenue, but like annualized revenue, because that's like a good milestone for the Series A essentially. And so uh, Mike and Akshay start grinding on this. And uh, Akshay is obviously the programmer, so he's gonna build the actual thing. But Mike wants to participate in that, so he builds this like no-code product and is kind of you know laying down the wireframes and like really just stepping in there. Um, and then once they, so they're, they're all in the Miami area and they're doing a bunch of stuff that, you know, quote unquote, to quote YC, like doesn't scale. Um, so they're just walking around warehouse districts and pitching like the local CEOs of these like small companies. Um, in one interesting story, they found this local company that was selling hair care products and they'd been on Shark Tank. This is like the classic family owned lifestyle business. You know, this is not some like hyperscaler, you know, mega brand, but 
they basically have a place where they make the stuff, they pack it up and they ship it out. And it's like a very, very traditional business. And it, you just you just know, or Mike just knew that this type of company would be using temporary staffing because they might be shipping out on you know once a month or they might have a big shipment that goes to Target. So they need to fulfill that. And so they need a bunch of people really, really, really quickly. And so, um, this guy just doesn't take no for an answer. Like obviously most of these companies, they have like do no solicitation signs and like they keep their doors locked. But <laughs> Mike basically like with his co-founder, like they basically broke into the warehouse or like hopped a fence or something or like found like an open back door and just went in, pitched the CEO. They, they knew that there was a very clear problem so they didn't get kicked out because everyone hates the current staffing models and everyone hates these companies because they're very unreliable. And so he's like, okay, I'm, I'm just not gonna take no for an answer. I'm gonna just essentially break in, but then the CEO will be happy with me and not like kick me out to the curb because I'm going to, I'm going to prove that I can solve their problem. Um, and, and they did a bunch of stuff. Like Mike was driving workers to warehouses to, to, you know, help them do the jobs. They found one worker who was just like spinning a sign on the street and they're like, Hey, you're spinning the sign. Like, do you want to come work on Traba? Um, uh, he asked like a friend who was like a baker of his, uh, one of his friends, like, hey, would you want to go work in like an industrial bakery? And it's like, sure. Um, he was paying these workers over Venmo. Just like a lot of things that were, that just don't scale and just just speak to the, you know, it's very clear that a lot of this comes from like those early Uber days where it was just like, you have a credit card, you're in a hotel and you're just getting this thing off the ground. You're just doing whatever you can. You're not taking no for an answer. And I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of young entrepreneurs who are like, no, I, I'm building a tech company. It, it, everything needs to be in tech. Like, wh why would I do like a Venmo? Like, I should just use the Stripe API. And like, they get obsessed with the engineering aspects of it. But, you know, Mike is more of just like, get it done at any cost and then scale, you know, after the fact. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's like the, it's a little bit of like the move fast and break things culture. This stuff has been, it's become very heretical to talk about, but obviously there's a ton of value here um, when it's done right. Um, so, you know, they, they lay down this like very aggressive culture from the very first, from the very first day of the company. Um, and the big reason that I think Mike is so obsessed with this, it's not just that they need to outwork the competition, which they do because it's a very competitive market and there's you know hundreds of these staffing companies that they're competing with and their main differentiator will be not just tech, but you know the actual hard work that they do to in the, in the operational focus on the business. But um, the workers on Traba wake up early and work long shifts and they're doing physical labor. Like it's it's hard work to work in a in a fulfillment warehouse. Like you're 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 carrying boxes off of a 18 wheel you know truck all day long or driving a forklift. Like a lot of these jobs they're not easy and they then these people you know, have to wake up early, drive there. If they don't get there on time, they can be locked out. Like it's often make or break. They don't have a huge savings built up. Like these guys are, are working hard. And, and so Mike just sees that and says like, you know, who are we as like the, the tech elite to just like sit in our, you know, air conditioned office in front of computers and like, you know, be lazy. Like we can at least work as hard as the, the people that we're helping get, get jobs. Um, so, he starts, you know, solidifying this thesis that like hard work will win this market. And he, so he starts calling all, everyone that he knows from Uber who were like the crazy grinders. He gets all of them bought in, so they come over. And the one of the first problems they had to solve was there was this narrative around the time during COVID that um, there was a labor shortage. Um, but it was actually a little bit more complicated than that when they actually got out into the, the workforce because people did want to work. They just wanted to, they just wanted to find a job that was kind of right for them. So he starts asking, you know, all these different people if they would, if they would want to work on Traba. It's a lot of yeses because um, the value prop is very clear. It's like, go to this place. The app just tells you where to go. You know, you know, you're going to get paid and it gets deposited immediately. And so he hosts this like pizza party. And then eventually the, uh, the, the app starts going viral within uh, worker communities because they all get referral fees. So you, you get on Traba, you do some shifts, and then you tell your friends. And a lot of these people who are working, you know, temporary jobs in 
um, in manufacturing facilities or warehouses, they they all know each other, so so they can very quickly kind of spread the the word that like there's a better way to get these jobs. You don't just need to be calling your, your temp staffing agency or showing up to an office and just sitting there until uh, someone tells you where to go. You can just get on this app, click a button, and then go go work and get paid. Um, and so you know building that better experience that like more seamless experience was like you know obviously working they hit 1 million in revenue um the they the, the, and, and again like this is not like gmv it's actually like their take rate after the uh the basically the business pays them the worker doesn't uh if the worker's making like 20 dollars an hour uh the business will pay like 25 dollars an hour or something like that and i don't know I, I don't remember the actual margins but um but so they so traba hits a million dollars in revenue and that kind of unlocks series a um and and you know obviously this is not recurring revenue because it's not subscription the whole point of a labor marketplace is that it's it's on demand it's like you know oh christmas is coming some company needs to ship out a bunch of stuff because they sell a, you know, a, a thing that will be often gifted. Maybe it's like an electronics product. And so they need to staff up. And so um, like a lot of the, a lot of, to de-risk the business, they just need a lot of different companies hiring on Traba. Uh, so they're doing like founder-led sales. Mike's just out there pitching companies to, to actually use Traba. And they hit a bunch of headwinds. I mean, they, they get to a million dollars in revenue in eight months, which is very, very solid um, and sets them up perfectly for Series A. But they had a lot of different problems with like Omicron came and there was a new COVID wave. And so that stopped a lot of events. And then also with the, holi uh, the holiday season, they started this company kind of like mid COVID, I think like May, you know, he posts that tweet. Uh, I think he closed closed the the seed round in August, and they weren't really big enough yet to actually land holiday staffing work because a lot of the companies that need big holiday staffing um, uh, workers they they plan that out a little bit more, and that maybe they're maybe they're preparing for that in, in October November, and Traba just like wasn't big enough yet to actually capitalize on that. Um, and then also, obviously, with with Omicron, like a lot of events got canceled, and a big part of Traba's business is uh, short term staffing for events. So like Taylor Swift is in town, and they need you know fifty extra security guards or something. Like that's a great place, or even just like to unload the trucks and to set up the stage. Like all these different things, um, you know, you just need flexible workers, and Traba's perfect for that. But they, you know, with Omicron, things were getting canceled, so there were a bunch of like headwinds. But they, but they hit it. They raised um and uh and 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 like the it, it it's interesting because with these with these stories i i like to kind of try and frame uh these companies as like an act one act two act three you know beginning middle and end and obviously trauma is still super early they've you know they're it's still like a small company um and so there's not really an act three final boss oh they took the pump company public they sold the company like you know they sail off into the sunset um but i kind of know how this is going to play out um basically you know it's like they're going to work really hard they're going to expand to other markets they're going to continue to hire these crazy people that are down to work intense hours and they're just going to build this <laughs> build this uh you know staffing marketplace and wind up making a lot of money which is why all the vcs are obsessed with it even though it's like you know, a quote unquote boring business. Um, but there is an interesting kind of tech angle long term, which is that, um, that I've always had this question about like, why is there no LinkedIn for blue collar work? Like with like LinkedIn, I mean, it's, I, I don't really use it and it's kind of a, kind of like a cringe place now, but um, clearly like everyone in, in tech and everyone in white collar work like has a LinkedIn and they've been wildly successful and the company makes a ton of money for, for Microsoft. It's like a wildly successful network. You would think that someone would just say, oh, I'm doing LinkedIn for blue collar work and I'm gonna, you know, put, you know, certifications for, are you a forklift operator or, or you know, are you cleared to work in like a, like a GMP food safe, like good manufacturing practices, like FDA approved facility or whatever. Um, but no one's actually been able to do that and I think that Traba in the long term could potentially solve that because every time a worker does a job, they get like kind of rated by the person, they, they get validated that they showed up on time, that they worked the shift, that they got paid. And then any, any skills that they have, any um, different like abilities or certifications, their background checks, et cetera, like all of that goes into like the Traba app and the Traba like database. And so um, whereas 
you know, the, the more traditional staffing companies, they just have, you know, basically like a CRM with a bunch of phone numbers that they just call. Traub is actually building this like, you know, tech first. And so over the long term, they should basically be able to, to bootstrap this like LinkedIn for blue collar work where like you want to stay on Traub because you get better jobs because your, your entire profile has been populated and like validated by, um, you know, the, the work that you've done and everything's like verified. It's not just like, oh, like does this resume look legit? And most people like m might not even have a resume. Um, or so it's just like, oh, does this, does this particular staffing company know me and trust me? And, you know, do I have a good rapport with whoever's going to be calling for me? Um, but there's, there's like one last question that I think is interesting to, to discuss. And it's something that I've been toying around with because I've been so focused on like the defense stuff and the national interest investing. Um, and all of that stuff is like very sexy. Um, you know, Elon Musk is building rockets. He's going to take us to Mars. OpenAI is building like AGI God. And so it's like this massive mission. It's like if it works, it'll transform humanity. The world will never look the same. And the question in, for, that, that I have in my mind is like, does everyone need to be working on a, a company that's not just going to be big, but it's going to have this like, you know, sexy transformative effect on the world? And I'm not sure. It's, it's a big meme. Uh, people, people love to hate on like the corporate credit card startups or the B2B SaaS. And I, I, I like making those jokes too. They're pretty funny. But, um, but it is an interesting question. And I think if you really look at the economy and you really understand how business works, you kind of have to begrudgingly admit that we probably don't get to Mars without a B2B fulfillment center that ships the screws to SpaceX on time because SpaceX can't do everything themselves. They're not fully vertically integrated company. They make a lot of stuff, but they probably have a CRM. <laughs> they, they definitely have payroll. They have corporate credit cards. And just taking, you know, just raising the efficiency of the overall company, like 1%, is value creative, obviously. You know these companies capture a lot of value. That's why there's there's companies like Ramp and Rippling that are worth like billions. But there's this there's this like they just like are kind of behind the scenes, and it's not as sexy. But I but I I I do think it's it's important. I think it's important work. And so the way I think about this is that look, if you're a rocket scientist, you probably shouldn't go and work at Google and sell ads. And I think that the meme of like our best and brightest are working on optimizing digital ad technology is is there's some truth in that, and we should probably avoid that. And if you're if you are capable of working, if you're capable of curing cancer, or you're capable of getting us to Mars, or you're capable of 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 you know building AGI, like that's something that you should pursue, and you shouldn't and you shouldn't be cynical and say, oh well, like there's a risk that we don't get to Mars, so I'm just going to go sell ads so I can be rich and retire and be lazy. I but but I think for the people that have a unique skill set in one particular place, it's worth it to go and build that company. Like um, with Mike, like clearly, like he's not this he's not this tech god hacker kid destined to build ai from a young age he's an ops guy he's just he's he's a grinder and so this is like the perfect company for him and that founder product market fit is just so strong like you gotta cheer for it and i just i i i don't i think that the i think that the meme about oh everyone should be you know working on the the quote unquote like biggest problems in the world or like the most important problems in the world like it's just it's a little it's a little simplistic. And when I think about Parker Conrad with Zenefits and then Rippling, it's like I talked to an investor who'd, who'd worked with him for years and, and he was like, he's like, I don't know if Parker could build anything but an HR company. Like he was born to do that. And I think there's something like beautiful about that, that he gets energy from that. He's not drained. He, he can work so long and so hard for years. He's been working on making HR more efficient for like decades or a decade now and it's clearly not burning him out he's doing great and so i think the question is just is just figure out what you're amazing at figure out what your your idea is how you can make a market more efficient basically make something people want to quote yc and then and then after you figure out okay what am i what am i equipped to build 
what creates value, then you need to ask yourself, will there be a moat at scale here? And if there is, then go and raise you know, venture capital. But if you're like, there's another side to the staffing market, which is the non-tech enabled staffing agency. The one that my, my friend sold to private equity. He, he's building a, he built a staffing agency and it was not enabled by technology and he sold it to private equity and, and, and did quite well. And, and, and the fact that he, you know, chose not to raise venture and chose to focus just on running that business operationally, like in an operationally efficient way, was the right decision for him. And 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 the flip can be true. Uh, the like there are there are staffing agencies that do hiring essentially they, instead of instead of focusing purely on temporary staffing, they focus on actually placement and getting a full-time worker in. And of course, that, those companies don't have re repetitive revenue, recurring revenue of any kind or regular revenue of, of any kind. So those companies, they trade at like 2x cash. But it's fine if that's what you're like born to do, like go and build it. So I think that there's, there's probably a little bit of too much of a meme around, you know, twisting your arm to work in an area that you might not be perfectly equipped to go after. And it's, and I think like the story of Mike Shabbat or Mike Shebit really illustrates that you gotta play to your strengths. Thanks for listening.